Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for this episode of Inside Ozadia. Uh, today, Mark and I were discussing transplant shock. It's something that's kind of uh, timely right now, heading into outdoor season. A lot of you have probably already transplanted, but uh, you know there can be some um, residual effects of transplant shock, and there's some easy things to maybe mitigate some of those issues. So, uh, Mark, what have you been seeing in the season so far? What I think about when I think about transplant shock is more um, about like acclimation right, from where we're coming from to where we're going. So that's also something that's going to be particular to each system, right? Like some people are starting uh, inside, you know, under full, you know, artificial lighting. And some people are just out in a greenhouse uh, hoop house, right, with no real environmental controls. So, um, you know, the transplant, uh, I guess, transition is going to be a lot smoother from like that kind of situation. Um, but obviously everything has its positive benefits. So I think when I do think about like the transition from, you know, our cube trays all the way up to, you know, the field, think about um, acclimating the plants to light, especially um, with um, outdoor cannabis strains or like indica dominant strains. We have to think about the amount of daylight hours when we're transplanting. Right. So if you're going from like a 24 hour or an 18 hour light cycle and you're trying to get a really early planting. Right. And you only have like 13 hours, 20 minutes of sunlight per day. You know, that's a significant shock. Right. From 18 down to 13, especially on a, like a, a quick flowering, you know, indica dominant strain. Definitely. So that's something you have to think about with your planting time. Is it all right? Well, if I'm at 18, maybe I'll drop them to 15 for a few weeks. Right. You know, I won't get that vegetative growth that I would get, but it won't be as big of a drop, a big of a shock that could trigger. And, you know, some plants will trigger at 13 hours, you know? Right. Yeah. So that's, that's just a thing, you know? So um, acclimating the plants to the temperature and humidity, and then also acclimating uh, the soils together, right? So maybe I'll just start on the soil part because that's one I like to talk about. Um, and um, particularly what I mean is that when you are going into the field, into the pot, um, really have to think about, um, you know, what is the porosity of the, the medium that we're going into and out of, right? So we don't want to have too much of a change. For example, if you're going from straight, um, peat moss and you're planting into a field of clay, you know, um, there's going to be wicking and drying effects that are, you know, there'd be pulling back and all these kind of things that are really going to affect like very strongly, right? In that kind of case, like, you know, the ability for the roots and to enter into their new um, environment. So that's like one way I see 100% people making mistakes by planting um, you know, really non-nutritive, um, very, you know, hydrophobic media into some sort of field that's not going to um, really be prevalent. You know, sometimes, um, uh, for example, this is one thing I saw the other day, um, uh, planting from rock wool cubes into a very, um, like, compost-based um, grow setup. So they're going into gallons, right, from just straight rock wool cubes. And they didn't cover the tops of the rock wool cubes or anything. So you have to see the rock wool cubes sitting right there. They will wick at a differential rate than just like a kind of like a really fluffy drainy media, right? So the cube is drying out, the media was staying wet and uh, they, thought it, they thought they didn't have to water and they were having root dieback, 
right right so like you said in that situation with the rock wool going into a compost like essentially soil you would recommend just covering that rock wool layer and trying to better incorporate it into the the system rather than totally having that that top layer exposed to uh, the environment, the air, so, so that there's a little bit more, like a mulching effect almost. Absolutely. That's what the idea there is. I mean, and it's not obviously ideal in any way, right? I mean, um, there's other, this the same thing could happen with cocoa cubes, you know? Um, so that's the same kind of effect is that you do want like to have that little bit of a, a yeah, right, a mulching effect so you can get the, give the, the roots time to get into that new media and grow through so they're not so dependent on that you know, that, you know, two by two cube or, you know, whatever it was. And then how would you mitigate that outdoors? You, you mentioned like going from a peat, like maybe plug, right? Or, or you know, um, you know, veggie, veggie start, if you will, into a clay soil. Would you kind of like maybe in landscape planting, dig a hole twice as wide and deep and supplement with something that can bridge that gap? Absolutely. If that's the case, if you're going from, and this could be dealing with either, either like going to straight clay or straight sand as well. You want to just kind of make the, and yeah, I mean, you could come in and you could absolutely dig much wider holes and supplement with some sort of, you, and you don't want to go straight to more, you know, of your potting media, right? Because then you're just making a hole, like, you know, bigger pot, essentially, right? right? Yeah. So you you want to do break that that especially that wall. But so when you're digging holes like that, you want to make sure that the wall, the end, the edge of where you're digging is is not going to be super like you don't want to go through and bore just a hole down, right? right? So you want to you want to have that edge be a gradual transition. And yeah, and I think that does sometimes on the large scale require you know cultivation incorporation previous to planting, right? So that's kind of how I go about it you know, depending on your compaction and everything else, your, you know, your level of gypsum and all these things, um, I would come and do a bit of cultivation and tillage previous, right? And work in that stuff. So we don't have to just like rush in with the hole, but yeah, in a small scale setting, hundred percent, dig a nice big old hole um, and incorporate it slowly. Right. Right. To like, you know, there. Like mix in native material, right? Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Exactly. Um, right on. And then as far as like the acclimating to light, you know, I think for most people listening and watching, they're going to have some concept of what we mean by that as far as not transplanting outdoors on a 100 degree, hottest, brightest day of the year. Um, leave yourself some leeway there as far as if you're able to wait until that cloudier day to go outdoors, or in an inside setting, hoop house, you may have shade cloth, use that. Uh, and indoors, if you have the ability, raise your lighting. If, if you're a bit more static in an indoor environment, you cannot raise those lights. Often you're maybe going to be transplanted into a larger pot. So that is inherently going to raise the plants higher. Um, you know, there are, there are techniques of, uh, you know, or I guess rules of thumb, um, don't spray. Uh, and even water um, on your foliage during that time because those that the leaves have not yet acclimated, as Mark had said, to that light, to that that increased intensity. Um, so that would incorporate into some transplant shock. Um, and then, like 
we haven't really touched on a practice that I know you and I have done a lot and when we're transplanting and that's kind of re-inoculating the microbial community directly onto the root surface, typically focusing with mycorrhizal fungi and so forth. So um, maybe Mark, you can kind of break down that process. I know we do very similar things there. Well, I mean, I think the, the key point in the transplant <clears throat> Um, with the microbial inoculants is that it's like the time that we have uh, the most access to the rhizosphere. You know, the rhizosphere is hidden to us uh, most times. Um, so this is the time we have most access. And you know, especially with mycorrhizal fungi, um, that you need to get really that root contact. Um, they, they're, they're symbionts, right? Um, so they, they're actually, especially when we're looking at ecto, you know, or endomycorrhizal, right? Um, they actually need to be inside of that root. Um, so the fact that we can get them on in that, we can see the roots, we know there's root contact, because um, that's the most important thing about biological inoculants is that we, we need um, to have colonization, right? So we need to do our dosages in, in order, we need to measure out our dosages in order to get like proper colonization. And that's something that's hidden to us, but um, in, in these moments, we actually have like really good access. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, just like to visualize the the practice um, on a small scale, you can dust your plugs going into a one gallon pot or what have you. Um, I use like to save the you know little spice shakers and stuff. Wash those out. They're good, reusable. Um, and then on a large scale, what I, I've recommended uh, is. You know, if, if we're planting like hemp starts by uh, machine, tractor, something like that, we're riding behind water wheel kind of thing. Um, you can have a large vessel and just dip those plugs in as you're putting them into the ground. I guess if, if labor or whatever prevents you from doing it in that manner, we can always water it in, right? It's not ideal by any stretch of the imagination, just because of what you outlined, Mark, we want that direct contact. Um, it's much more effective, uh, but watering in is better than nothing um, we've found. Yeah, watering in now is better than later, right. even, yeah. right, as well. And on the nutritional front, you know, are there any recommendations or uh, setbacks that anyone should look to uh, avoid? Well, to avoid, I would say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the from the conventional approach, you know, people come at it, you know, like we got to put our side dressing down a transplant and start watering in our slow release fertilizer, you know, and that is kind of antithetical to our biological approach. So that is something you would want to avoid. Um, I mean, nutritionally, I definitely, uh, um, I've seen lots of really good results with kelp, right? Getting the, the potassium down to get those roots, uh, you know, it's perked up and also kelp is, <clears throat> has like multiple functions um, with a lot of the, the different, I guess, components that are um, in the ocean, right? Um, so not only micronutrients, but also some enzymes. Uh, so I've seen kelp like really, really good. Um, I mean, there's definitely a bit of nitrogen that you do want to get down early on, but I mean, I, I'd say that that's more of a, not a transplant, I'm, uh, at transplant, I'm really looking at root growth and, you know, stem integrity. So like calcium is another thing that I like to put down at transplant <clears throat> pretty much always. In general, you wouldn't, uh, would you suggest either maybe 
reducing the rates for the following feed or um, anything of that nature? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you want to give them some time to, to acclimate for sure. And you typically want to like get a wet dry cycle in as well. You know, obviously not all the way dry, but you want to get to the point where they actually do like uh, enter and then they need to search for that water a little bit and there it stimulates the root growth a little more. Um, and they absolutely give them a little bit of time to acclimate, right? So that's another aspect is like not only pre-transplant, but post-transplant. It's a good point. And then would you also suggest if possible, collecting a sap sample anytime within the transplant phase, or would you say avoid that to mitigate any possible shock? I mean, if you have if you have a large enough sample, you know, um, yeah, I would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, if the plants are big enough, depends on what size you're planting at and all that kind of stuff. Um, but <clears throat> I think it would be a really interesting data set for sure before okay. transplant. You know. Always. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, everybody, I think hopefully we provided some good insights into transplant shock, how to avoid it, what we suggest uh, during that time of year um, or that stage of your cycle. So uh, as always, if you have any questions, feel free to email us uh, info at ozidia.com. And uh, until next time, we'll catch you on the next episode.